Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre, hosted by me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator, and Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous people who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are manifold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. Like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each one of us has had just one hour to research a topic, 60 minutes, that's it. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. Welcome to series four. We're so excited to try some new ingredients by shaking, stirring, and folding in a slightly new format and some special guests. Just like a good roast in a slow cooker, the topics we research usually need much more than just one hour to research. So this year, we're following a different recipe and focusing the entire series on one topic, food. Spices, mealtimes, cookbooks, military rations, preserving food and restaurants. We're also excited to welcome some special guest museum professionals from our neighbor museums here in Niagara to help us carry the ounces, teaspoons, and tablespoons, cups, pounds, and even bushels of research we'll be cooking with on the podcast this year. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back in the archives to catch other episodes of historical adventures on topics like hats, ministers, soda water, maps, Thanksgiving, daylight savings time, telephones and stuffed animals, printing, and even the FLQ crisis. On today's episode of One Hour in the Past, we're excited to welcome Stephanie Powell-Baswick from the Port Colborne Historical and Marine Museum to chat all about the history of spices. Enjoy the episode! So for today's podcast, we are welcoming Stephanie Powell-Baswick, who is the director and curator at the Port Colborne Museum. She's been there for a number of years now, uh, and I've known Stephanie, it seems like, for a long time. Uh, Stephanie and I worked together when we were very first in the museum field, so... Uh, we're not going to say how many years ago that was, but it's been a few years. Uh, and Stephanie wanted to uh, let us know as part of her introduction that she does not cook. And so that's important to know <laughs> <laughs> as we go through uh, what we all learned about spices today. Nice. Uh, okay. Well, as welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. 
Um, as uh, most of our listeners, regular listeners will know, we like to start every uh, discussion with a definition of what we're talking about. And sometimes that means it's a really fun definition. This one does not disappoint, in my opinion. Okay, so the definition of a spice. A spice is a seed, fruit, root, oh, that rhymes, uh, bark, or other plant substance primarily used for flavoring or coloring food. Spices are distinguished from herbs, which are the leaves, flowers, or stems of plants used for flavoring or as a garnish. The word spice comes from the Middle English shortening of the Old French a spice. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Imagine the, a French pronunciation of that word. E, there's an E in front of spice, basically. And that was derived from the Latin species, meaning sort or kind, and then in the late Latin, it also came from wares. So there's kind of like a, a I guess, variety uh, component to the history of the word. And uh, and then the next, our next section uh, in the podcast, as our, our regular listeners know, is we give a very brief where we started and where we ended up without anything in the middle, and then we'll get to that later. So on my list, I have Kathleen going first of where you started and where you ended up. So I started with, uh, I like to kind of try and start with something familiar. And so this time I started with a cookbook that I had in my uh, collection, which is really just a reproduced version of uh, Amelia Simmons' first American cookbook from 1796. Uh, So looked a little bit through that related to spices. And where I ended up, the very last sentence I wrote on my paper was, Vanilla is one of the most expensive spices in the world. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, I'm next. I started in a very random place. Uh, The first thing that I came across when I started my research was the standardization of spices and the international classification of standards. Ooh, that sounds cool, actually. (laughs) It wasn't. (laughs) It was not. It was totally disappointing. Uh, But we'll get into that. And then where I ended up, I ended up in New Bremen, Ohio, at the New Bremen Pumpkin Fest. (laughs) This is going to be a great podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And our special guest, Stephanie, where did you start and where did you end up? Yes, yeah, so I started off with uh, speaking with a colleague who uh, had just finished 32 podcasts on culinary historian Ken Alba, and I ended up with poetry by Thomas Ravenshoft. <laughs> this is wow. great. It doesn't sound like any of us went in the same direction. <laughs> okay, Stephanie, um, do you want to take us through your research? Well, uh, as my introduction did say, I am not anyone who you will find in the kitchen unless I'm being served up a meal. So uh, <laughs> I did find the topic a little wary. I said, you really want me? You not want someone else? <laughs> and uh, Kathy said, no, you'll be great if you know nothing. So um, that, that same day, I actually um, had an introduction call with uh, Greg Hittingbottom, who is the new tourism coordinator of the city of Port Coburn. And uh, as a icebreaker I just said do you cook at all and he spoke with passion about spices Um, he does like to cook I asked him if he were to have any spice in his pantry what would he pick 
he couldn't pick one. So therein lied my understanding <laughs> that spices can bring passion to the world, even though it doesn't for me. Uh, by the end of the conversation, he did tell me about za'atar, which is a spice he's been using the most lately. Mm. And he described it as a blend of savory dried herbs like oregano, thyme, cumin, sesame seeds, salt, and sumac. To which I then told him about the sumac uh, plants we added in our Christmas reef at the Porco <laughs> <laughs> So I, I segued my conversation with him right back into the museum and what we do. It connects. Um, Everything's so interesting because my, my definition didn't my definition didn't include um, decoration. Well, the, I guess it's cu- it's ground down, and I guess right. what he was saying is this is one of these like uh, spices that have many spices in, so uh, used right. in a lot of Indian cuisine. And um, again, my eyes were just wide open, and I was thinking, can I use that as a Scrabble word? Because it's Z A A T A R. Oh yeah, that's a perfect Scrabble word. How many, how many points would that be? I have no idea. Depends where we land. Seven, Twelve, maybe five, like fifteen, maybe twenty-ish points. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a decent word. I have never um, used that spice, but it sounds really good. There you go. For someone who enjoys cooking, I've just passed that along. (laughs) So I I credit Greg, though. Um, My next idea was also um, we have with us at at staff at the Port Coburn Historical Community Museum an education programmer who is also passionate about... um, culinary history really um she's quite interested in she's a baker she's a cooker and she had been telling me that she was watching a podcast 32 sessions and um so I said you know maybe what we'll do is a little oral research so I spent 10 (laughs) minutes calling her I I, I did time it. I had to stop her. She could have talked the whole time. Um, and what what I asked her really was, um, what did she learn in those 32 podcasts about spices? So she came quite prepared and uh, helped me to learn about the fact that the spice trade really was the beginning of globalization. Um, that did set me back to grade four spices spice project when we were learning about trade routes and I had to bring spices on a bulletin board on the bus and they broke and it got <laughs> nutmeg got all over my clothes anyway so so that did take me on a little bit of a tangent but I brought it right back to Abby where we started discussing um the different vessels that um that they were using looking for a a quicker route the venetians with their galley ships that could hold a lot and uh, how they were protected with guns but um, the, the the ships would be full of spices um dyes and and silks and that, that they would be able to hold so much because they were light and um then she really described to me about the dalmatian coast and how the Portuguese tried to emulate that and uh, we talked a little bit about ship design and really what on the Welland Canal here like we both share that Welland Canal what kind of (laughs) ships we have and the cargo so we we talked about that a little bit again I brought it back to our um, to our conversation where we ended up talking about we wondered if we were to design a wooden ship now for our for our cargoes that were in the Welland Canal what it would look like. Um, the next That's thing cool. I That's it really is cool, cool right? Yeah. You could do that as a like a, a make work project for people. You could put it out as a contest. It, it sounds like we have a collaboration here, St. Catherine's Museum, Portland yeah. Museum. Yeah. Uh, the next thing I did is uh, I, again I was a little bit old school in my research. I started out with kind of oral research, and then I went to my library, Ooh. and I got out a book. <laughs> and, uh, a little 
bit of funny thing when I picked up this book from um, the curbside service that Port Coburn's offering. The lady who knows me said, are you starting to cook? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) And then I described our project to which, okay, she said, okay. That makes Um, a lot more sense. We're going to talk about spices rather than use them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking about the history of it. But I I actually found, and, and she said, there's some good recipes in here, which I didn't know there were recipes because the book is called The Book of Spices. And it. It's Frederick Rosengarten Jr. It's been in print very long, and I guess it's a, it's something that she knew she had she had used, and um, because it was a, a big book, I uh, I had to start somewhere in it. So I uh, started with the first recorded use of spices, and um, Rosengarten let us know that it was the first recorded um, use of spices was in the pyramid age in in Egypt from 2060 to 2100 BC and it was onions and garlic we feed that they fed to 100,000 laborers who toiled on the construction of the great pyramid chips as a medicinal herbs to preserve their health so how many of you out there have had family members telling them eat garlic <laughs> Eat onions, put it in your diet. Uh, I, cer- I certainly thought of my, my the Powell family, my Powell side, that are always eating garlic by the cloves and for health. So I thought that that was uh, interesting, first recorded history. Of course, uh, they do go on to talk a little bit about um, the fact that uh, there's a longer history that's not recorded and the, and the use of spices. The other thing I, I did follow up when I was talking with um, Abby was I asked her the same question I'd asked Greg. Um, if you were to have one spice in your pantry, what would it be? And she, mm, without question, question, said cinnamon. Dead, deadpan, knew what it was, had no... Uh, no qualms about picking it and um so this this book that i've got out had 35 chapters on the most important spices and herbs one of which was cinnamon so i decided to dive deep into cinnamon (laughs) personally i like cinnamon that's one thing i do put it on a hot chocolate and i remember the cinnamon sticks you use it as a straw i'm seeing two heads shaking so (laughs) a lot of people out there the thing that i always i was uh maybe not so bright as a kid and i thought it was the cinnamon that was the sweet part so I took a spoon of cinnamon and put it in my put it in my mouth and it was terrible because I just thought that was like that was the good part but it was turned out that the sugar was the good part. Yeah. Did it did it make you cough? I think I cried. Yeah. yeah. And like burn like burning. Yeah. Like it was like horseradish almost. Yeah. I don't think they recommend that you do that. Nope. <laughs> I didn't do it again. I didn't do it again. It smells so good, though. Well, <laughs> and my mom had, like, a huge, you know, one of those big clubhouse ones of, of cinnamon. Yeah. yeah. Had had little Adrian listened to this podcast, he would have learned <laughs> a little do bit it. more, Don't more do about it. cinnamon. Um, Go for the, the sugar. Yeah. The chapter on, on cinnamon starts with a, a beautiful illustration uh, from 1691, and 
and uh, I can share that with you if you like. Um, and it's an illustration of the barks being taken off of the tree. And uh, there is interesting known um, one of the oldest spices. So that, that came along with what I was talking about with the first recorded. It's one of the earlier spices. So I was kind of glad that Abby picked that one. But I did learn something interesting that I had no idea that there's cinnamon controversy. So there is true cinnamon. Yeah. And then there's something called kasha. It's true. Okay. Yes. You knew this? Yes, what? I did. I didn't know this. <laughs> this is like one of those things where you try to pass it off because it was so expensive oh. to buy cinnamon. Right. That's exactly it. So that's what. <laughs> so I learned a little bit about the difference in terms of um, how, how the trading. Uh, that, that's exactly what Kathy gave it away. Uh, the kasha you would need double the amount of kasha for the cinnamon because it was. Um, less potent and they do talk about um, when it's ground it is hard to distinguish uh, the, between the two so the difference really is in the color cinnamon is a warmer in tone and tan in color with a sweet flavor Adrian well <laughs> maybe if you if, if you use it properly if you put a spoonful in your mouth it's not good <laughs> and the uh, kasha is uh, reddish brown in color which uh, with a coarse texture and it's uh, a, a stronger bitter flavor so um two of the oldest spices known to man and uh, they did quote a lot of of the um written in the bible that they were talking about different in exodus and that they were told to go get cinnamon and kasha um it was uh kasha itself was um brought likely they presume from china so it was exported from there and cinnamon is from the east indian tree so both of them are um since 4,000 years, there's been confusion about them, but now we've we've got some determining factors. And um, cinnamon is um, also, I've learned about the bush for it. It's a bushy evergreen tree of the laurel family. And when it's dried, its inner bark is the true cinnamon of commerce. So that's what you're looking at when you're talking about the bark. So uh, after I learned about cinnamon, I really was interested... Um, kind of a little bit about this passion that the the people that I don't have that I, I want to have um, <laughs> that how this came about for them and and why it is so I did I did think of something that I had um, heard before and um, that was the a variety of life Palmer that had heard something about that so this is the first I open up my computer now now I've, I've lost my phone calls I've, my book is now closed and um, what I ended up up doing was looking up um, what what was that quote so the variety of the spice of life uh, that it gives us all its flavor so that's William Cooper so he's an English poet and um, that kind of put me down through learning a little bit about William Cooper himself I did try to read his poem but it's an Iliad it's very long okay it keeps going and going so I, I didn't want to share that with your listeners <laughs> But I do, I do, I do say if you're interested in um, giving it a whirl, I'd be interested in hearing a reading, maybe an oh oral reading. Oh my gosh! Read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can put the, the link. audio book uh, of the spice of life. Yeah, we can put the link in the. Uh, oh, yes. in the, perfect. The credits. <gasps> Footnotes. Yeah, yeah, I would like that. So William did change um, the direction of 18th century poetry because he started writing about everyday life and the English 
countryside. So he was a, a forerunner of the Romantic uh, poetry movement, and he was a contemporary of William Wordsworth. So I did think about going and just reading some Wils- Wordsworth. I have uh, poems on my <laughs> on my uh, shelf at home, but instead I decided to look up a few more uh, other no- things I knew um, uh, about spices and, and really literature. And another one that I recalled from, uh, I have a son who's turning 19 next week, and I remember when nursery rhymes, I was uh, doing nursery rhymes with him, how he was affronted about the poem, What Are Little Boys Made? Of. So, if you recall, little boys are made of. I don't know this one. Snakes and right. snails and puppy dog tails. That's right. Is what little <laughs> boys are made of. Do you remember what little girls are made of, Kathy? Uh, cinnamon and spice and everything nice. Sugar and spice. Oh, I was close. And everything nice. <laughs> That's what little girls were made of. And so that poem got banned from my household after the first reading <laughs> because he didn't think it was fair that uh, that he didn't get to be sugar and spice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the the one thing and and how it kind of wrapped up for me because now I was getting I was going down poetry um, really was uh, another. Um, something I had read in the book at the beginning when I had just started and so um, I went back to that page and what um, the author Rosengarten has has said is figuratively a spice is that which enriches or alters the quality of a thing especially in a small degree as spice alters the state of food that which gives zest or pleasing flavor a relish as a variety of the spice of life. So I thought I'd leave you with a poem about spices. And that's where I leave you. It's called What Are Spices? It's by Thomas Ravenscroft, and it's from 1609. So we're still in history here. What are spices? Nose, nose, nose. Who gave thee this jolly red nose? Nutmegs and ginger, cinnamon and cloves. And they gave me this jolly red nose. And that's where I landed. I love that poem. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) That's the best. That was was excellent, Stephanie. (laughs) That was really great. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us. That's really fun. So I'm going to start talking about my research. But before I do, I just want to mention that I famously don't like spicy food. Uh, And it's not a flavor problem. It's a heat problem. Uh. I believe I have a low pain tolerance. And I can't withstand the ouchiness of certain spices. I started my research. The first thing I saw was standardization. And so I clicked on that. And I kind of, uh, I thought that was really weird. I didn't think about the idea of standardization or even for spices or even for food. But I found out that spices and condiments, as well as many other food products, are standardized by the IS, or sorry, IOS, International Classification for Standards. And spices and condiments are, are standardized under 67.220. If anyone would like to go on their website and see it. And there's a very, uh, there's a big list of requirements for spices and condiments to be uh, standardized. And the standards includes specific requirements, including uh, odor and flavor, freedom from insects, molds, etc. Extraneous matter, 
light, seeds, uh, chemical properties, grading, sampling, testing uh, methods, packing, packaging, and the actual manufacturing of. But unfortunately, those specific standards are behind a pay paywall. <laughs> so I didn't <laughs> didn't fully commit. Uh, but now you know that there's a standard. What the standard is, I don't know. I also went to Health Canada. I was thinking if there's an international standard, maybe Health Canada has some sort of standard. But um, unsurprisingly, the Health Canada government website uh, is kind of dry. Uh, and when I put search in the search, or when I put spice in the search function, nothing came back. So I just gave up and left. Don't you think it's um, odd that there actually needs to be a standard related to insects and extraneous matter? I do. Well, I mean, we're, we're here. <laughs> I mean, we have a very agricultural uh, community here in Niagara. And if you talk to winemakers, you'd be surprised, I guess. You probably don't want to know what comes in <laughs> off the vines at harvest time. I've heard some really gross stories. But that's why they filter and everything like that. So yeah. anyway, uh, so there's just standards there. <laughs> so anyway, uh, then I got wrapped up and around with the mixtures of spices, like famous mixtures oh, of spices, yeah. because that was part of the standard thing, um, standardization uh, specific requirements. And I picked a couple of interesting uh, spice mixtures that I thought might have an interesting history, but it probably... They're not as interesting as I thought they were. <laughs> this is really the theme of my research is, is, oh, this looks interesting. And it's very, very <laughs> not interesting at all. So I started with garlic salt. Oh, yeah. And I thought, I wonder what's in garlic salt. So it probably is obvious to listeners at this point that I have no idea. I, it's not that I don't cook. <laughs> it's just that I cook to feed myself and I don't really know what I'm doing. I was surprised to learn that garlic salt is really just dried garlic and salt. I thought there, <laughs> I thought there was something. I, even I knew that one. <laughs> I thought there might be something more interesting about it. But guess what? There is something more interesting about it. It's called calcium silicate. Ooh. And it is the anti-caking agent that they put oh, yeah. in garlic salt and regular salt and lots of other things. But guess what? There's more uses for calcium silicate. And so this is where I went. I went on a calcium silicate tangent. <laughs> so calcium silicate can be derived naturally from limestone or by reacting calcium oxide and silica. It's <laughs> widely used as an anti-caking agent and it's approved by the uh, UN's food agency and then also the World Health Organization. Mm. So that's good. That's interesting. So yeah, you don't standards. think about that. Yeah. You don't think it about the things that are in your, your food to preserve. Or well, and to it's true. Like, how long have we been using anti-caking agents in our food? It's like a, an industrial food thing. When it was discovered, you know, they hopefully they tested it to make sure that it was good for us to actually put in our bodies. But it's also, interestingly enough, it's also a safe alternative to asbestos. It does a similar thing with that asbestos does, but without causing uh, with any of the, uh, the negative impacts of asbestos. And it's also used as a sealant on roads. <laughs> and the most random thing, it's also what they spray on eggshells to uh, sort of form a, a, a guard, I guess, or a barrier around eggshells. And when it applies, I guess it reacts with the other existing natural materials or chemicals on the eggshell, and it sort of seals the molecular shell i guess interesting that is interesting yeah 
Yeah. I don't really understand it, but it is interesting. <laughs> it sounds like people from the, the chemistry muse- department of a museum well, could. <laughs> and I think probably why I never really got into cooking beyond cooking for myself was that because ke- there's so much chemistry and math, all that measuring. Yes. And and nobody can pick a standard of measurement. So you have, you know, you have a teaspoon of whatever this ingredient, but then you have a pound of butter. Those two things are not the same. And the label on the butter is not in the measurement that you're in the thing. And so now I have to Google what the conversion is and I give up. Anyway, so the next spice that I picked was Montreal steak spice. And on the list that I found, it was the only spice that's named after a place. Oh, that's that's interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah, Montreal steak spice is derived from a dry rub kind of spice mixture um, and it includes a mix of garlic coriander black pepper cayenne pepper flakes dill seed and salt although i guess the mixture and the recipe can vary depending on who's making it but it's called montreal steak spice because of the very famous schwartz's deli in montreal which is credited with its creation and apparently within a year it was so popular that everybody in montreal was using the same mix or a similar mix and then the power of marketing and commercialism took it right across the world. Uh, and then I found pumpkin spice. Oh, I love pumpkin spice. There we go. Pumpkin, <laughs> pumpkin spice latte. I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get there. So uh, the pumpkin spice, it can be similar, similar recipe of the, quote, mixed spice. So I guess mixed spice is a more European um name for getting uh, and recipe for getting a a similar result and it generally includes cinnamon nutmeg ginger cloves and sometimes allspice it's usually credited to amelia simmons uh pumpkin pie recipe from 1796 which included mace nutmeg ginger and allspice and that brought me to of course the pumpkin spice latte because it's a very popular drink, even though not everyone enjoys it. It's very popular, and it's so popular that it can generate up to eight, eighty to $100 million a year in revenue for Starbucks. Wow. And it, as most people know, their uh, pumpkin spice latte season is only eight or ten weeks or so. So that's a, you know, a lot, $10 million <laughs> a week in revenue is quite a bit. Wow. Uh, When it was launched in 2013, there was a lot of criticism about the spices and the additives and the sugar content in the drink. But by 2015, they reformatted the the flavor to include actual pumpkin, because that was one of the complaints that there was no actual (laughs) pumpkin in the drink, which is funny because the response to that criticism was that it's not a pumpkin drink, it's a pumpkin spice drink. That's right, exactly. Uh, And pumpkin spice is not pumpkin. Uh, anyway, and they they also removed the artificial coloring, which I think they solved with real pumpkin. Uh, even though the drink is meant, again, to uh, evoke the spices of pumpkin pie or pumpkin spice and not actual pumpkin itself. So pumpkin pie can have those spices that I listed before, but also vanilla and cardamom can be used. Uh, all spices uh, known and common to replace cloves and nutmeg if those are things that you don't have. I certainly don't have nutmeg or cloves. I have cinnamon, pepper, salt, 
That's it. It's funny <laughs> to say um, that because I've had days where like I was doing some baking and some random recipe and it required allspice. And I'd be like, text my mom. I usually text my mom when I have a recipe issue. I text my mom and I'm like, what can I replace allspice with? <laughs> and she's like, how can you not have allspice in your cupboard? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I was just excited that cinnamon was on your, your list because, you know, I, I feel close to it now. <laughs> yes, you are our resident cinnamon expert. <laughs> okay, so pumpkins themselves are a French import to England uh, with an early recipe dating to 1675. The pumpkin was used uh, at first as sort of a bowl for pumpkin soup. Uh, so soup that was served out of a carved pumpkin. That was the, they called it, quote, pumpkin pie, but it was actually a soup. Uh, and that's the that's the 1675 recipe. That came but, back into trend relatively recently where people yes. were, so, I think Martha Stewart had like a whole thing in her magazine about serving your pumpkin Martha. pie right out of a, a, a small <laughs> pumpkin. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Culinary is circular, I yeah, guess, just like is. history. It's all circular. Yeah. yeah. The first pumpkin pie recipes appeared in Canadian and U.S. cookbooks in the early 19th century to go along with Thanksgiving celebrations. Uh, And that reminded me of the fact that in our very first season of One Hour in the Past, we did a podcast all about Thanksgiving. That's right. So listeners, make sure you go back and listen to the Thanksgiving podcast after this episode. Of course, the pumpkin pie has appeared in poetry as well. (laughs) And in a number of... uh, Uh, songs too. There's a bunch of famous Christmas songs that have pumpkin pie mentioned in it. Uh, But there's this wonderful poem about pumpkin pie uh, by John Greenleaf Whittler uh, from 1850 called The Pumpkin. And I'll read it to you. It's pretty great. Ah, on Thanksgiving Day, when from east and from west, from north and from south, come the pilgrim and guest. When the gray-haired New Englander sees round his board the old broken links of affection restored. When the care-wearied man seeks his mother once more and the worn matron smiles where the girl smiled before. (laughs) What moistens the lip and what brightens the eye? What calls back the past like the rich pumpkin pie? That is awesome. So according to, (laughs) we'll link the whole poem. There's actually way more stanzas than I I noticed before. I I enjoyed your reading, Adrian. Very well done. Thank you. Thank you. We'll link to the whole poem in the footnotes, of course. Uh, What he's saying is pumpkin pie solves all your problems, which is true. Okay. So the fun, I ended up, this is where I ended up in the end of my research with a fun fact. The world's largest pumpkin pie was made in New Bremen, Ohio at the New Bremen Pumpkin Fest on October 17th, uh, October 25th, 2010. Oh. And uh, the pie was, here's the ingredients of the pie. The pie was 1,212 pounds of canned pumpkin, uh, 410 liters of evaporated milk. Oh. This is the part that really gets you how big it is. Excuse me. 2,796 eggs. Whoa. Seven pounds of salt. 14 and a half pounds of cinnamon. Yeah. <laughs> Call back. <laughs> Call back. And 525 pounds of sugar. Oh, my God. The final. The, I know. The final pie 
The final pie was nearly 4,000 pounds. It was 3,699 pounds and was 6 meters or 20 feet in diameter. How did they cook it? I don't know. Wow. Maybe the sun, a big sun oven. <laughs> a big sun. It was a very hot day a in September of 20, 2010. In Ohio. That's a great question. Uh, so, yeah, that's where I ended up. Wow. That's that's amazing. I I told you, Kathy, it was a roller coaster. <laughs> it is a roller coaster. It's funny. It's so interesting how different our research is, is on all of this. Because my research, I did touch on a few things that Stephanie, you covered, but uh, not too much. Uh, uh, it definitely didn't cover what you covered, Adrian, pretty much at all, honestly. <laughs> That's so, good. As I mentioned, I That's great. started with Amelia Simmons, the first American cookbook. Um and uh, I was really interested in uh, what spices were used most commonly in early cookbooks in North America. That's really the kind of the, the question I was asking myself when I first started this. And uh, so I flipped through. There's no list of these spices should be in your cupboard. Uh, not like when I get to that part of the Mrs. Beaton book when I'm doing my, my blog. I w- there is actually a list in there of what should be in your kitchen. But this particular cookbook didn't have that. But I flipped through to find recipes and see what was in those recipes. Uh, And there were spices like nutmeg, mace, cinnamon, uh, cayenne pepper, ginger, garlic, and cloves. Uh, And so I thought that was pretty interesting. And there were lots of different things. Like it was interesting, like you would, different spices that you wouldn't normally use in a meat dish now would have some of those spices in them. Like... It's not so common anymore to use things like uh, uh, cloves in a meat dish anymore. You don't hear about it that much. Usually you hear about it in baked goods. Um, And so there were some recipes like that. Uh, And then I also thought that the addition of cayenne pepper was interesting because that's a North American uh, addition to the spice family. So all those other ones are kind of spices that would, a lot of them are spices that would come from uh, the the Indies, like uh, nutmeg and cinnamon. Um, but things like cayenne pepper and ginger and garlic being and cloves being things that you could find in North America, I thought was really great to have in that recipe book. Uh, but then I totally got off on a tangent because I was actually interested in the difference between spices and and herbs, which I didn't read the script that was that you wrote so before this. And so I didn't realize you were going to cover that in the introduction. <laughs> yeah, you didn't catch that. That's okay. So anyway. Give us some more, though. But like you I said. Just br- that, the definition just brushed over. Yeah. That, so so I was more. like, I wonder yeah. why they don't actually mention herbs at all in this cookbook that was the weird thing like so you know they're using nutmeg or not nutmeg they're using um rosemary and thyme and sage and um what else uh basil basil for sure so they're using all of those things that they would have growing in their (laughs) garden because i know that from you know past experience that that's stuff that they grew in their gardens here in north america at the time but they never actually say put in this much of that it's assumed that you would put in if you're making a stew that you're going to put in these uh, these herbs yeah. uh, but they specifically mention spices when you needed to add spices which i thought was kind of interesting so then i'm like well what's the difference between herbs and spices anyway because uh, i just call everything a spice that's in my spice section of my cupboard <laughs> and there's a lot of them all packed in there, so I have to like them. Uh, anyway, so as you mentioned, herbs are the fresh part of the plant. 
So like the leaves and spices are the dried part of the plant, the root that you could dry. So the root, oh. the stalk, the seeds, or the fruit that all could be dried and then crushed up for spices. And they normally have a stronger flavor than herbs uh, because they are more rich in essential oils. Which- so is a dried herb like oregano a spice? Well, I, I mean, don't think te- so. I, I don't think so, but... The the, oh. the idea is that you use herbs fresh, that you're not so. It's oh, it's kind of like, you know, a purist would use their herbs <laughs> fresh. So you'd have like your pots of herbs on your windowsill, and when you needed basil, you would you know take it out and use it. <laughs> oh my god! I don't either. I have mostly dried I herbs. I have never done. <laughs> And then interestingly, there's some plants that are considered both spices and herbs. So coriander and cilantro are considered both spices and herbs because the leaf is the herb part of the plant and the seed is the spice part of the plant. Uh, So uh, you could find them in either category on the shelf in uh, if you're going to divide up your shelf based on herbs and spices. I don't know who's doing that, but you never know. Anyone out there who wants to go and do that? Uh, So (laughs) then I got on another (laughs) tangent, uh, which was about the value of spices. I was really interested in value and where this all came from. Because I came across a fact that said uh, in prehistoric times, spices were often a valuable form of currency in trade. Uh, And so then I was kind of interested in what was the most valuable spice in early Canada? What would have been of that list? What would have been the most valuable spice? Interestingly enough, the uh, the most valuable spice uh, wasn't on the list I, I read to you. So, or the most common spice, not the most valuable, sorry. The most common spice wasn't the, on that list. Would it, I think it'd be like the hardest thing to get or the thing that's most rare. Would that be the most expensive thing? Um, or the value, more valuable thing? Value, sorry, I should go back and say the most valuable spice at that time was on oh, wait, the wait, list. wait, wait, wait. Wait, I'm not oh, going to tell you I what bet. it is, but the okay, most common it. spice in North America at the time was not on this list. So oh. assumedly, Amelia Simmons and all of her readers would have known to just right. use this spice and would have had it. So it was most common and the most traded, but the most valuable was actually on the list uh, okay. from that period. Although, yeah, anyway. Uh, so in the, this is, this, I found a, a a speech, or not a speech, but a lecture that was written by, uh, or that was read by a prof uh, in economic history at University of Toronto. I think it was in t- 2010 he wrote, he read this lecture about uh, the trade in spices. And it uh, goes to the, like the 12th to 17th century um, and uh, said that oriental spices actually constituted the most profitable and dynamic element in European trade, which is basically what you said, Stephanie, is really kind of like the largest transatlantic and the first transatlantic trade network was based on spices, which I thought was super interesting. I hadn't really made that connection before because I always thought that the big connection was this fishing uh, connection, you know, with the uh, cod fishery on the Atlantic coast of North America, with the um, fishermen on the um, uh, the western coast of Europe uh, and in uh, in England that were coming here, and there was a big transatlantic trade that way. And that, to me, that was where I was putting my my headspace about the transatlantic trade. But spices were way before that. I should have known that, but I didn't. 
Um, and it was all dominated by the Italians at the beginning, as you mentioned, Stephanie, essentially. Um, and the Italians actually, in the, med the medieval period, uh, had control of the spice trade. So I love calling it the spice trade, by the way. I think that sounds super cool. Sounds like <laughs> I'm in love, like a pirate movie or something. Yeah. <laughs> is that where, like, is that where, like, the Medici family got their money from, the spices? Uh, I think a lot of those families that uh, were from the, that area and, like, the coast of Italy were got their money through the, the spice trade. Wow. And then I... So we wouldn't have, like, Leonardo da Vinci without spice. <laughs> <laughs> It's possible. I don't know. That's a great connection. It would be interesting to study that, to, to kind of fit that yeah. together and see if that connection actually worked. Um, and this lust for spices in other countries was a big uh, driving incentive for countries to, ex to uh, finance exploration. So this is where colonialism starts to rear its ugly head in the story, is that the spice trade, because it was so profitable and they saw how much money was in the spice trade in uh, Italy and eventually uh, the Netherlands and um, uh, all of that, you know, part of Europe, it actually kind of made other countries sit up and say, hey, we should start exploring and see if we could get involved in this trade as well. Um, and so by the 1600s, the Dutch East India Company basically had a monopoly on uh, East Indies spice trade. So here's where I got the fact of the top five uh, spices that were um, on the list of the top five spices that were uh, exported around the world. So we have actually not mentioned number one in anything we've talked about so far. The top most moved spice in the world at the time. Can you guess what it is? Do we still have it today? Oh, do yeah. We still use it For today? sure you do. I, how about onions? Oh, no. You're close, though. Because I was thinking because of my Egypt records there, yes. the garlic-onion garlic combo. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What's close to onion? It's, it's well, I mean... Not really, but Gar garlic. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you give us a hint without giving us the answer? Uh, you probably actually have it on your table. Oh, salt. No. Pepper. Pepper. Oh, <laughs> pepper. So pepper. technically, salt is not a spice. Technically, right. right. Salt <laughs> is a mineral. I, I, I yeah. learned that one. It's a flavoring, but uh, uh, and a, a mineral exactly. But uh, pepper was the most moved spice. So in order, it was pepper, cinnamon, ginger, and cloves. Uh, but it also included spices like cardamom, mace, saffron, and anise. Those were kind of the big, the big groups of spices that moved around the world. I thought pepper was so interesting, considering we barely ever mention it, and it was yeah. like this thing. Everybody was moving pepper. Um, and then, so this goes kind of onto the idea of value and why. Why were spices so expensive? And why was this trade so lucrative? And it was really had to do with distances and the distance things had to travel and uh, the dangerous overland route, especially. Uh, the prices did come down a little bit when they were able to find a sea route to get to the Indies. 
but it was still extremely costly. The prices did not go down that much when they were able to start a sea route because the sea route had to come down and around the, the Cape of South Africa and back around, uh, which also is that whole incentive of them trying to find a new route, which takes us to the idea that uh, now we're looking for a new route to the Indies and somehow accidentally Christopher Columbus ends up in North America. Um, and, so <laughs> and, and you know what else is on that route? Pirates are exactly. on that route. <laughs> so because of the cost of all of this... Um, all of this uh, uh, travel and danger and, you know, all the middlemen that you had to deal with to get all these spices in there, the cost of a spice could be between 10 and 100 times the price that the person paid at the source. That's wow. how valuable spices were. And it just depended on how far and how... Um, uh, how much trouble it was to get the spice, essentially, and how much work was it to get it in the first place out of the ground, dried and and kind of processed, right? So this took me on a small tangent about uh, saffron. So saffron, interestingly, is the only spice in the world whose relative price has not dropped since the Middle Ages, like basically since the Middle Ages. <laughs> uh, and it's really the only truly modern expensive spice. So at the wow. time of this article uh, that I read, it said that the cost is about $1,800 $1, a pound, which is $4 oh. a gram if you want to take that down to an even smaller number. Uh, and that's because to make one pound of saffron is equivalent to 225,000 stigmae of the saffron plant. Wow, that's interesting. It's huge. And so that's a lot of labor to get that many of just little stem parts of the inside of the saffron plant to make. Because it's really light, too. So to get a pound of it is crazy. Uh, so it's a very, imp uh, very expensive uh, spice to get even today and you know there's lots of recipes that have uh, things that you can replace saffron with to get the color or somewhat the flavor uh, but if I'm sure if you're talking to a real foodie you can't replace the real flavor of saffron <laughs> <laughs> that's not me but <laughs> no, I don't think that's any of us no. <laughs> Uh, so that was interesting. And then it kind of like made me think about this idea of why then, why, why, who was using the spices and why? Um, because the, the um, lecture that this prof was talking about was that, you know, there were all of these myths about why spices were so important in trade. People talking about that they were used in, in um, uh, preserving food. But in actual fact, that's not really true because the price of spices came down way before refrigeration was invented. And they also had salting and um, preserving methods other than spices prior to this. And then there was some talk about, uh, in this lecture, he talks a little bit about um, that they used spices to mask the, f the flavor of bad meat that they were eating. And he said there seems to be no evidence that they actually ate bad meat that all the recipes basically say to go get fresh meat and eat your meat fresh. Yeah. And people ate their meat fresh. They didn't eat bad meat, essentially. Well, I mean, some of them might have, but they weren't just buying spices for that reason was his point. And so uh, the point of this, this prof's lecture was really that spices were really, a, it was all about a luxury good. And if you could afford to have spices, it just made you look like you had more money, essentially. Status symbol, right? Yeah. Is that kind of like sugar, too, In at least as I'm familiar with in the Victorian period, is that if you had white sugar, you were 
doing good. Yeah. You know, white sugar for your tea or whatever. Uh, or for even like a, a cake or something like that. Whereas a lot of other people who maybe couldn't afford sugar from the Caribbean, like real sugar from the Caribbean, had to use other things to sweeten their you know, baking or tea or whatever. Is that something that people would have done? Like, oh, you can't afford saffron, so what's a good replacement for saffron? Like, Or just don't cook things that need saffron? <laughs> I think they just wouldn't have cooked it with it at that period. Right. But now, like, I've even heard of recipes, like in my experience where you can use something other than saffron because saffron's expensive right. actually. And so yeah. um, I have actually seen recipes where to get the color or uh, this kind of idea of the saffron flavoring that they suggest other spices to uh, to replace that. So, um, so it still happens today. Um, and the interesting thing that he mentions was something that I hadn't really I kind of had thought about it, but I hadn't really put it in these words, is that it was like a trivial expense. So if you could afford this, this was like, you know, you could show that you had extra money because you didn't need it to, to survive. It wasn't food and water. It was a spice that just added something to what you had. And I hadn't heard it being referred to in the past as a trivial thing. You know, you always seek like mm. a extra money or whatever it is, but this is like a trivial. And so it's like really about showing your wealth. Uh, and that did eventually decline um, by the 19th century. It was a less less important part of why they were buying spices. This is especially like in the Middle Ages. This guy was specifically talking about the Middle Ages and why spices were so popular at that point. Um, so anyway, I spent a long time reading this guy's lecture, so I, I didn't get too much more time to continue. Um, and then got to the idea of this being the first international trade route, which you've already mentioned, Stephanie, and uh, colonization. And then uh, there was an article after that that I got to that started talking about vanilla. And I got right to the hour, right when I got to the very start of talking or looking at vanilla. And I was so interested, actually. I wish I hadn't time to do more because we haven't talked about vanilla at all on this podcast and yet it's probably one of the most common flavorings that we use um use in cooking nowadays and it's incredibly expensive to get pure vanilla uh lots of the extracts that you get at the the store are not pure vanilla like it's right. the bean right that you want to get the real yeah. the real vanilla flavor and it always like when you i know when you know used to go and read a martha stewart for example which is kind of a little more high-end the idea was a high-end kind of cooking she always used the vanilla bean for the cooking rather than that brown liquid that I'm always pouring into my recipes. <laughs> I felt like I was like a lower class vanilla user. <laughs> and that's really just because vanilla is such an expensive, uh, expensive spice nowadays. It's kind of like rivals uh, um, saffron for, for cost. Um, but also I only got to just a little tiny touch and I'm going to do more research outside of this, but about the uh, economic and um, uh um, climate impacts of vanilla and the popularity and I, of vanilla. But I didn't get to that at all, so I can't really speak to it. Do you remember a few years ago when it was either a tsunami or a hurricane of some kind hit Madagascar yeah. and vanilla, they lost like an entire year's crop of vanilla. Um, and it, that was like drove the prices through the exactly. roof and everybody was freaking out about not having any vanilla for anything. And we're all going to have to use the extract <laughs> and all that stuff. <laughs> and it's be I guess it's because that like the majority of the world's 
vanilla, real vanilla, comes from Madagascar, yeah. which is it's crazy, pretty wild. But I guess it's kind of similar. Like if you think about maple syrup, real maple syrup, it, it, it had like there's a finite product out there that comes from a very specific part of Canada and the northern United States. And so like how much, you know, yeah. There's uh, so only so much sugar we can turn into maple syrup. This did talk about that uh, um, the weather event that happened in Madagascar and the impact it had on the vanilla industry. But it also talked about how um, because of the economy in Madagascar and how it has been impacted, uh, it's like a, a, a kind of a vicious cycle. So the climate in Madagascar is perfect for growing vanilla because of the way that the uh, the forests and the um, rainfall works there. But in order to grow more vanilla to make more money, they have to cut down those forests, which are creating the climate right. for the good vanilla producing. So like it's like this really awful, vicious circle that if they want to grow more vanilla and make more money for the people in their country, they actually have to cut down the thing that's causing that's making their country right. the best place to grow vanilla. So it was kind of a sad, but I didn't get chance to really hear too much more about it or about that impact. But it's it would be an interesting kind of side story to hear about and as always our listeners are always welcome to continue <laughs> the research after the podcast and tell us about it like send us a, a note in the uh, the comments yeah. about what you found out about madagascar vanilla <laughs> yeah. that's awesome so that's where i All got right, well, yeah stephanie thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for adding a little spice to and variety into my day today. I really had fun with this. We had so much fun too. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole for some munchy historical treats. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts so you don't miss any of our yummy historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com slash St. Catherine's Museum or at SDC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. coming down the rabbit hole for some munchy historical treats. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past. <laughs> I forgot about that one. <laughs> I don't even I know how I can read that without laughing out loud. <laughs> I wrote that one. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. okay. I don't need Is to. Is that okay? Yeah. Do you want a different pun? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, I, I'm going to have to do bloopers for this. This is great. Oh, dear. Okay, I don't have to read that sentence again, do I? 
Yeah, because I laughed at you because I forgot about it. Okay, I won't. <laughs> I won't. I won't laugh. Okay, okay you good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Munchy historical treats. <laughs> I wish we got t-shirts. That. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like all my other ones? Yeah, they, I thought they were great. Teaspoons and tablespoons, cups, pounds, and even bushels of research. <laughs> oh, wow. That's the first time all we've right. had a real laughy blooper. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I mean, it's I true. laugh throughout the whole podcast all the time, but that one was a good one. <laughs>